The following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida or online at westpines.org. One of the most iconic pictures from the entire 20th century is actually a somewhat controversial photo. It is a picture of a man, I actually don't even know his name, but he did one of the bravest revolutionary acts in the 20th century. You may have seen this photo before. Check this out. This is the photo of a man uh, that is known now as Tank Man because we don't know what his name is. And this happened a couple decades ago, and there were protests happening in the capital of China in Tiananmen Square. There are these protests, student-led protests, that were pro-democracy. It was happening in the capital. And everyone was like waiting on pins and needles. How is the government of China going to respond to these protests? And journalists were gathering into China. The world was kind of waiting to see what was going to happen. And finally, the government responded by sending in a line of tanks into this square in the capital. And as they're rolling through the streets, I mean, video cameras from news outlets all over the world are catching this. One man steps out from the crowd by himself, and it looks like he's got some kind of shopping bag in his hand. It looks like this was almost spontaneous, and he steps out in front of this line of tanks, and he just stands there. And if you saw the video, the tank moves out of the way, and he steps again in front of it. He's standing right in front of this front tank, and actually, to kind of get the full force of it, look at this next picture. See, it's one man staring down an entire column of tanks, and they all come to a halt. What happens is he actually then climbs up onto the tank. They open the hatch, and he starts talking to the man in the hatch, and he eventually gets back down and continues standing there, and there's a standoff for a few minutes, and everyone is just waiting to see what's about to happen. And almost as mysterious as this whole situation, all of a sudden, two men come from the crowd, two or three men, and they drag him away, and no one knows what happened to Tank Man. Don't know if he was executed, imprisoned, escaped, he's in hiding, but this moment... By himself, he stopped an entire column of tanks. And Time Magazine put him as the 20 greatest revolutionaries in the entire 20th century. It's Tank Man. Now here's the irony of the story. Tank Man never knew, if he's still alive, never found out or doesn't yet know that he's one of the 20 revolutionaries of the 20th century. Don't know that he's been given that, that accolade because that image of a man standing in front of the tanks in defiance, that image is barred in all of China. You couldn't even find it on the internet because it is all blocked. You couldn't find that picture on the internet. In fact, last year at an anniversary of Tank Man, a group of French reporters smuggled that photo into China and were walking around in a downtown area showing that photo to the Chinese citizens to see if they had ever seen it before, had any recollection of this moment. And as the story goes, within 10 minutes, authorities descended on them and arrested them for disturbing the peace. This is a very powerful moment. 
one man stepping in front of all of this danger, this onslaught coming against him, and he looks it down, refusing to budge. I mean, it's no contest who's going to win that, a man or a whole line, a whole column of tanks. He's willing to stand in front of all of that danger coming at him. And it makes you wonder, man, what comes into someone to give them that kind of guts, that grit to stand in front of a tank. It seems even spontaneous. The spontaneous run out from the crowd and calmly stand in front of those tanks. I mean, what gives someone that kind of courage to stand in the face of danger like that? And it has to be that in their mind, it is clear that the alternative is even more dangerous. There's a tyrant that's in our culture. It's an oppressor. And it's not an actual person. But there is an evil regime that has been ruling for decades. It's an oppressive regime that has been ruling for decades in our culture. And if we don't overthrow it in our lives and in our homes, then it is going to oppress us. It's going to hold us back. It's going to tear apart our relationships. But it's something that's so prevalent in our culture that the doctrines of this regime are just embraced and accepted as normal. But what we're called to do is we've got to stand in front of this oppressor and say, you know what, no, I'm going to revolt against it. The name of this tyrant is materialism. It's been ruling in our culture for decades and is oppressing us, oppressing our families, and wants to get at and brainwash our kids. And it's something that we're going to have to take a bold move and stand dangerously in front of the onslaught because the alternative is even more dangerous. We're going to spend the next couple weeks looking about on this concept, and we're looking at a specific book in the Bible. The book is called Ecclesiastes. And it's not a very common, commonly known book in the Bible, which is kind of a tragedy because it is unbelievably profound. You might be one of those people that says, man, I don't know about the Bible. Why would I listen to anything the Bible says it's so old? What could it tell me in my life? Well, Ecclesiastes pretty much blows that out of the water because Ecclesiastes is like ripping the top off of our culture and saying, here, here's here's what's going on. It's unbelievably profound. Um, We're going to look in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, if you would turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. It's also going to be up here on the screens if you don't have a Bible with you so you can follow along. Um, As you're turning there, I want you to hold your place there because I want to give you a little bit of an overview about the book of Ecclesiastes because it's hard to jump in the middle and know what's going on unless you know how the book works and what the purpose of the book. So let me just read you the first two sentences of the book. This is the opening. I'm just going to read uh, out of chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is what it says. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. All right, this tells us a couple interesting things. So the first, this opening two verses, opening two sentences, this tells us first who's writing it, and this is important to know this, who is writing uh, this, this entire book. And we know he calls himself the preacher, but he's not actually a preacher. 
It's actually a king. He's the king in Jerusalem. He's the son of David, so we know which king. It's Solomon. Solomon is writing, the famous King Solomon is writing this book. Now he calls himself a preacher because he's going to talk very passionately about several things throughout this book. But he calls himself a preacher, and it's Solomon writing this, and you can kind of tell from the first sentence what he's, second sentence, what he's writing about. He's really writing about the meaning of life. He's going to look at various sectors of life, money and wealth and popularity and success and sex and fame and all these different categories of life. He's going to look at all these things, life and death, hard work. He's going to look at all these different categories and he's just going to talk about the meaning of them and what's behind all that. Now you might be thinking, okay, why do I care what Solomon, what one guy said about that? People rant and and uh, rave about the meaning of life on their blogs or in their books all the time. Why do I care what Solomon says? Well, here's why you care. Because Solomon is talking from one of the most unique perspectives you can find in any other person historically. Because in every one of these categories, he has excelled beyond almost anyone else you can find. He had unbelievable success in every category of his life. Let's just, let me give you some examples. Let's just talk about his wealth. When we talk about his wealth, we get a picture of this in the history books. We get a, we get a picture of what his, his wealth was like. And it tells us what his annual income, what he brought in, Solomon. It doesn't, that's not including his overall wealth. It's not including what he inherited from his very successful father, King David. It doesn't include that. It specifies, it says, okay, this is only part of it because this doesn't include the explorers he sends out from his kingdom that bring back all these treasures. It doesn't include that. It doesn't include the kings and other rulers and governors that just show up and just pour these gifts on him. It doesn't include that. This is just kind of the regular intake. And it says, uh, pretty consistently, it says that he brought in 666 talents of gold every year. Now, if you're like me, you're like, okay, well, tell me what a talent of gold is. Let's put that in perspective. When are talking about a talent of gold, we're no longer talking in terms of pounds. We're talking in terms of tons. So the equivalent of what he's bringing in every year, if that was today, if you brought in 666 talents of gold every year, you would be earning in the billions a year. That's not his worth. That's not what he's accumulated over time. That's Every year, he's bringing in billions and billions of dollars in gold. He is one of the wealthiest figures you can find in history. Because that's just part of his wealth, and that doesn't even include what he inherited. This is one of the wealthy, there's hard pressed to find another character in history that earned this amount of money and had this amount of wealth. What does this mean then for Solomon? I mean, was he wealthy but the country suffered? I mean, what, what did he do for the rest of the economy of Israel? It actually gives us a picture of that. Because Solomon is not just, you know, it wasn't just, well, I was born into the right family and I just I have a lot of money. I didn't really do anything to earn it. No, no. Solomon's actually most known for his wisdom. He's unbelievably strategic. He is, he is wise. So he, is, he not only gained a lot of wealth personally, but the economy in Israel is described like this. They say, silver was so common in Jerusalem that it was like stones on the street. Like, let me give you an idea of what that's like. When I was a kid and I was receiving 
an allowance from my parents. It was like $2 a week, okay? And I'd save it up to go buy some baseball cards or go get like a smoothie at 7-Eleven, okay? And as I'm walking to 7-Eleven to get a smoothie, in that stage of my life, my economy at that point, if I saw a penny on the ground, that's a significant, makes a significant difference if I collect enough pennies. So I would pick up that penny. At this stage of my life, my economy's a little different. If I see a penny on the ground, I'm thinking you may be like this too. That penny is not worth the bacteria that is probably on that penny. A penny I will pass by, okay? A nickel, I might take notice. A dime, maybe a quarter. I'm definitely picking up the quarter, okay? That's my line. The quarter. If I get enough quarters, I can get a soda somewhere, okay? So a quarter, that's my line. Okay, this is what it's saying in Jerusalem. If you're walking to 7-Eleven in Jerusalem at the time of Solomon and you see a nugget of silver on the ground, you're like, ah, why bother? Got a million of those at home. I'm just not even worth bending over to get that, that nugget of silver. That's what the economy was like under Solomon. He's that wealthy. He's that successful. He's, un, he's unimaginably powerful. Talks about his army. We learned about his army. He had thousands of chariots. We're talking, that's the, that's the ancient tank, okay? He had thousands of troops. It says they were all around Jerusalem. If you walked into Jerusalem, you felt the power of Solomon. You saw it everywhere. How about his fame and his popularity? He was undoubtedly a common household name throughout the known world. There were kings coming from everywhere just to get some time with Solomon. How about luxury? It describes his throne room and his house and the temple he built. It was unbelievably opulent. I mean, the most opulent and luxurious you could have in that day. This is the guy. I mean, in every category he speaks to, he's been at the absolute utter fringes of what a human can achieve in that category. And it's from him, he goes from one category to the next and says, let me tell you what's behind that, because I've been to the other side. I've been to the end. And describes in each one of those categories. Now, he starts right off the bat in this book of Ecclesiastes, and he tells you kind of what his punchline is. He says this, vanity of vanities, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity. The word vanity in the original Hebrew there means like a vapor. It's like it's a mist. It's like smoke you try and grab and then it's gone. It's like a vapor. Just moved by the breeze and the wind and dissipating. It's like he's saying, this is essentially the force of what he's saying. He's saying, it's so empty, it's so empty, it's all just empty. He says, look at every category. He says, you're pursuing this? Trust me. It's hollow. You're pursuing this, trust me. It's empty, it won't satisfy you. You're after this, well, this will say, this will, you know, mean something in my life. Then I'll know I'll, I'll have achieved and I'll be known. He says, trust me, it's empty. In fact, Ecclesiastes, it can kind of seem like it's depressing because he's going through each category and he doesn't just say, this is empty and this is empty. He'll say, this is empty and let me show you why. And then you read it and you're like, wow, that is still so true today. And he keeps going like that over and over. You don't see a lot of commands. It's not do this and don't do that and do this and don't do that. That's not really what Ecclesiastes is. He's just saying, let me just show you the reality. And you read it and you're like, yeah, that's, that's reality. 
And he gets all the way to the end of Ecclesiastes, and there's no hope in the entire book until you get to the last two sentences of the entire book. I read you the first two sentences. Let me read you the last two sentences of the entire book. It's, um, I'm just going to read it to you. It's Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 and 14. It says, the end of the matter. He says, this is the bottom line. This is the final conclusion. All has been heard. He says this, fear God. Keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Here's what he's saying. He's like, please, he's saying, please hear me. He's saying, please hear in these, all of these different categories of your life. He's saying, look, you, you can pursue this. You can make this the most important thing. But he's saying, trust me, it's empty. He's saying, honestly, all you've got All you've got in this world, he says, is fear God. He's saying just know that God knows what he's doing. saying at the end of everything, he did invent everything. He knows how everything works. He's like just live a life that is awestruck by God. He says and obey his commands. He says, please, at the end you can strive and strive. It's all empty. Just do what God tells you. That's where he gets to. Now, here's where we're going to go for the next couple weeks. We're going to jump into one specific topic that he looks at and unpack it. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 10. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10. And let's look at the subject here at hand. He says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, let's just start off. Here's the subject. He says, he who loves money. Now notice he doesn't say this about money itself. He says, the love of money. He who loves money will not be satisfied. Let's refer to the love of money. We'll call that materialism. It's this desire. I've just, I want to have more. If I have more, I can get more stuff. And if I had that, I'd be happy. And it's that craving to like, well, I like this, but now th- this new version or now this updated mo- version or now this season's new version. I got to get that and I want to update this. And if I had that stuff, I'd be happy. And that makes me happy to get that stuff. It's that need. It's that craving. It's that unhealthy desire for more stuff, more money and the things that it brings. Materialism. He says, this is what he's saying off the bat on this subject. He says, the person who is materialistic, the person who loves money? He says, you'll never be satisfied. He's saying, that's not the type of thing where the more you get, the more full you feel. Yeah, I got that. I feel great. He says, the more you get, the bigger the pit it's creating in your life. The more you try and pursue that, the more you're going to want more. And the more, say, well, I hadn't thought about, look, maybe I should get something like this. And well, there's many options. Then I got this, but I want this is even better. He's like, it just creates an even deeper pit that you can't fill. He says, man, the person who they're making their life about how much income can I bring in? It's all about the amount of money. He says, trust me. Solomon's saying, trust me, as Solomon is saying, as someone who brings in billions and billions of dollars a year, you're never satisfied. Do you hear like a little bit of pain? He's probably saying, sitting there, and he's not saying this pridefully, he's probably broken saying, I am the wealthiest man I've ever heard of, and I'm not satisfied 
There's something broken in this hamster wheel of just saying, if I had a little more, then I'd be happy. If I had a little more, and at some point in his life, after years and years and years of getting more money than he could even come up with ideas of how to spend it, he's like, man, the whole desire is broken. The whole pursuit is broken. It's not going to satisfy. If it's not satisfying me, and I look around, it's not satisfying those others, man, it is not going to satisfy It's like a vapor. He says it's vanity. He says it's like trying to grab on. Well, if I just had this, I'll be satisfied. He's like, you're trying to grab on to something, stuff, material stuff, money. And as soon as you grab on, it slips through your fingers. Because what I was really after was satisfaction. And it can't give it to me. But he doesn't just leave it as saying, man, materialism is empty. The pursuit and love of money is empty. Needing more stuff is empty. He tells us a little bit more of why. Let's look at this, verse 11. Verse 11 says this, When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? And then he says, Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Man, this is really profound. He tells us really two really important things in this text. The first thing he says, the more goods increase, the more stuff you have, the more there are mouths around to consume it. Let me give you an example. Let's say you just get out of college or you just get into the the workforce, you move out of your parents' house and, and you move into an apartment. And I mean, it is not a big apartment, but it is yours. And you're like, I'm on my own. I buy my own groceries now, which is a lot of frozen foods and like things you pour out of a box. But you're like, but they're my groceries. And this is, this is like your palace. You're so happy in this apartment. And then, you know, you get a little farther along in your career. And then all of a sudden you meet someone and now you're married. And now the two of you are together in your little oasis, which is this apartment. And you're going for a couple years. And then a friend of yours buys a home. Then another friend of yours buys a home. And then you say, maybe, should, maybe we should buy a home. So we should buy a home. I can't believe how cramped we are in this apartment. I can't stand to be in here another minute. So you say, all right, let's buy a home. And you're like, can we afford to buy a home? Well, let's see if we can afford a mortgage. And so you're kind of crunching the numbers. Well, you know, if we cancel Netflix, okay, and do this, and we never go to McDonald's, all right, we can just get over. Okay, we can get the mortgage paid. And so you're like, all right, we can afford a mortgage. And then you go and you get out of the lease and you go buy a house because you can afford the mortgage. But paying for a house is not just the mortgage, is it? Now you're like, oh man, I've got to mow this lawn. I've got a lawn to mow. And now that there's a couple different mouths that you now have to feed. You have to say, okay, am I going to pay Home Depot and buy some lawn equipment or am I going to pay a lawn company to, to cut my lawn? And so now you've got to, some money is being eaten out because you spend a little more and now there's more mouths. And then all of a sudden the roof leaks. Before the landlord fixed the roof, but now I've got to fix the roof, and now there's, there's more money being eaten up because I've got to, got to fix the roof, and now there's a homeowner's association. You don't even know what those guys do anyway. They make you so mad, but <laughs> eating a little bit more of your money. And you go along, you're, you're in your house, and okay, it's situating a little bit, you're moving up in your career, and maybe you're looking around, and other people that are at the same level in your career, they're starting to have some nice stuff. I could go for some nice stuff. I mean, I, I've been kind of suffering with this three-year-old phone. I don't know how I've made it every day with this phone, and so-and-so got the new one, and so now I've got to get the new one. Can I afford the new one? Well, let me, you know, talk the guy's ear off on how I can situate my plan so I can afford the new one, and then I get the new phone. But I can't just have this phone. I've got to have, like, a, a case that can take a direct shot from a bazooka, okay? Because it's a, 
It's a fancy phone, all right? So now I've got to buy a case for my phone. And then this friend over here, then they're, they're taking this, they, they're, they're saying, okay, they're driving this car, but, you know, they got a nice car. I've been driving around this car that I've had for years, and they've got a nice car. They've got a foreign car. An imported car, so now I get a nice car, a fancy car, but then something breaks in the car, and I can't just take it to the regular mechanic, can I? I've got to take it to the mechanic who knows how to work on this foreign car and has to ship in the part from Brazil or wherever it's coming from to fix my car. And I can't put regular gas in that car. I've got to put fancy gas in my fancy car. And so there's all, as soon as I spend a little bit, there's more mouths that are after it. And then the kids come along, you're doing well. Maybe you say you're doing really well. And you've got the kids and you say, you know what, you know what we need? This is what we need to survive. We need to put a pool in. <laughs> can we afford a pool? Well, it costs this to put the pool in. I think we can afford that. And you do that and have 29 more payments will pay off this pool. But that's not the cost of the pool. I've got to now go buy chemicals for the pool. I've got to put them in and then the pool turned green because I forgot for two weeks. Got to pay someone to clean the pool. Now I'm going to pay a company because I can't clean the pool myself. Now I'm paying them, and then the pump breaks. And now, and every, with each more spending, there's more eating away. This is what Solomon says, man. The more goods increase, the more they increase who eat it. You know what he's saying? It's like he's putting it like this. He's saying more spending, more stuff, more spending. Now there was a, a wise man once said, "More money, more." More money, more problems. <laughs> now, as wise as the notorious B.I.G. was, <laughs> there was actually someone several millennia before named Solomon who was even wiser, and he's making this point. The more stuff you have, the more it's going to eat away the more, more stuff you get, the more spending you're going to do. But that's not the only thing he said in these verses. This, is, this metaphor is powerful. He says this. He says, The sleep of a laborer is sweet. They work hard. They work with their hands. Then they're done. And, and at 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, whenever they get off work, at whatever time, however hard they work, they know when they're going home, work is done. But this is the metaphor. He says, man, they may eat a lot or a little, but they sleep well. And he says, but that's not the way it is with the rich. Their sumptuous, luxurious food keeps them up all night. Their luxurious food they ate gives them indigestion. It's a beautiful metaphor. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the laborer, man, they work hard, but they've got a simple life. They go home, work is done, they have a good night's sleep. But not so the person who's got more responsibility, more investments, more side jobs, more income streams. They're getting emergency emails at night. They're getting more phone calls. They're juggling more things. They're up all night. They're stressed. I mean, imagine, maybe you can picture this situation. Maybe you're going along, you're like, okay, you know, I've got this job, but it'd be nice if there was another income stream coming in. So my friend's got this business. All right, I'm going to be a part investor in this business, so I'm doing this, but I'm kind of dabbling in this. Or maybe it's, you know, it'd be nice to have some real estate investments on the side. So, you know, I'll do some real estate investing in here and working over here. Or maybe there's a network marketing opportunity. So I've got my main job and I've got this. It's just another income stream. It'd just be nice if we had some financial breathing room and just had a little bit more happening in our life financially and there's nothing wrong with that. Solomon's not saying don't do that, but he's saying, but just be aware, this is the reality. 
Because one day you may wake up and be like, oh my gosh, I am so stressed. My quality of life is down. I can't take all this pressure. I I'm, guess we have more money in our house, but I don't have any time to spend it with my family. And I can't keep all these things going. I'm not sleeping. My, my marriage is falling apart. My relationship with the kids. And, and then here comes the critical point where I'm saying, you know, it would be nice to back off a little bit and quit doing that. But here's the problem. If it's just money and I've, I've, been, and I've been wise and doing it, I might be able to just back off a little bit and say, okay, I, I need to stop this. But if I have the love of money, I might have already spent myself to the place where I can't back off now. I might be so stretched because we had that extra income and we've been wanting to do this and now I've got these commitments and these commitments and these commitments and these commitments and now I'm stopping and looking at my life and I've been trapped because now I can't back down and I don't have back off and I don't have any time with my family and my quality of life. I'm so stressed and anxious. It was not worth it. See, here's two things that Solomon is saying. The first one is more stuff, more spending, more stuff, more stress. The more plates I'm trying to keep spinning, the more things I've been, I'm investing in, the more stuff I've bought, the more things I've got to care for, the more things, he says, the more stuff, more stress. He's saying, I'm not saying either one of them is good or bad. He's just saying, at this point, he's saying, this is reality. But let's keep going. Let's see what he says next. Let's, let's go to verse 13. There's a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. He's talking about a huge tragedy, and we've probably either experienced it or known someone close who's experienced it. He says, Here's, so this is one of the worst things you witness in this world. You see someone who's smart with their money, wise, conservative, successful, Thinking about his kids, he wanted to take care of his kids and, and give them an inheritance one day, and then all of a sudden, one thing happened. One bad venture. One turn in the economy. One, one thing that switched, one catastrophe switched in his life, and he lost it all. Here's the third point that he's saying, and it's so important for us to hear. More stuff, more spending. More stuff, more stress. And here's the third one. Money is momentary. He's saying it's so fragile. It's not guaranteed. It can be here one minute and gone the next. You know, it's funny, this would have been a harder thing for us to, to swallow in 2005 than in 2015. We can all nod our heads and say, oh yeah, we've seen it. A lot can happen really quickly. I mean, there's a time when, man, everything's great. I mean, invest in the housing market. Nothing could change that. I mean, that is solid. And we can stick all of our security and our hope and our protection in money. Is he saying don't save? No, no, he's not saying don't save. Is he saying don't be prepared, don't protect your family? No, he's not saying that. He's just saying that that's good things. He's saying, but I just want you to be prepared. If you're sinking all of your hope and your protection and your security in that, if that's where you're finding your personal sense of security, just be reminded Money is not foolproof. It's not ironclad. It's momentary. It's fragile. In fact, I don't mean to be doom and gloom, but just for the sake of being real, I want to read to you two excerpts from two newspaper articles that came out last year. And they're, one's from the Washington Post, one's from the USA Today, and they're both about Florida. The Washington Post was talking about, how, uh, about Florida and its hurricanes, and this is what it said. This is last year. It said, Florida has gone 3,270 days without a hurricane, nearly nine years. 
So it's 10 years now. And that is by far the longest stretch on record. The longest stretch ever on record. And then he says, he warns in this article, he warns about being overly confident and feeling overly secure as Floridians because of this streak that we're on. And he points out this fact, which is startling. He says, Miami now has the largest exposed coastal assets of any city in the world. Our coastal assets in Miami are the most exposed of any city in the world. Now, the USA Today, USA Today wrote an article that was, this is the name of the article, Hurricane Luck Will Run Out. Thank you, USA Today. We appreciate it. But this is what he said in this article. He said, a professor at the University of Colorado surmises what the toll would be if a hurricane came through. And he says, we estimate that if the 1926 Miami storm would come through today, it would result in more than $180 billion in damage if it were to hit today. I'm not here to be doom and gloom. I pray we get another 10, 15, 20, maybe hurricanes are done. They've just ceased to exist on this planet. Okay, I don't know. I hope and I pray that that's the case. But here's all I'm saying. Let's just be real. It is so fragile. It is not worth anchoring our hope and our security in something as fragile as money. Because so much could change so quickly. See, what Solomon is telling us, he's saying, trust me, From my perspective, Solomon is saying, man, the pursuit and love and need and craving for more money, that materialism for more money, for more stuff, the latest this, the latest that, this luxury, this thing, that thing, this is the need and and, and boiling my life down to how can I get that? How can I arrange my life to get that? He's like, trust me, as someone who has it all, it is so empty. You will never get to the end and find satisfaction. You may find momentary burst of pleasure and it's gone so quickly. See, there's a tyrant in our culture. It's called materialism. It's been around for decades. And the doctrines of this oppressive regime, we swallow it down in our culture. Let me read you the statistics. Currently, the average credit card debt per U.S. household is $15,270. That's the average. In one poll, 55% in America say they break even or spend more than they make per month. It's just evidence that this is the oppressive regime over our culture. And what we've got to do is we have to stand in the midst of the onslaught and say, wait a minute, no, 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 no. I am not just going to say, okay, how are they living? I'm going to live like them. How are they living? I'm going to live like them. No, I'm going to stop and say, no, this is oppressive. I'm not, I'm not going to be oppressed by materialism. I'm not going to be told how, I'm not going to let my money rule me. I want to, I'm, I'm going to be making the decisions here. I, I'm not going to be oppressed and ruled by it. I'm going to say, this is how we're going to operate as, as in my house, in our family. I, I don't want to see this oppressing my kids. I don't want to see this tearing my family apart. Do you realize that financial arguments, financial strain is the leading cause of divorce in our country? You say, I'm not going to let that in my house, so I'm going to stand boldly in the face of this onslaught. And here's why this is absolutely so important. Because when you look through history, every tyrant wants to be worshipped as a god. They want a statue set up for them. They want to be saluted in the classrooms. And it is the exact same with materialism. It wants to be your god. 
It says, here, if you had money, you'd be safe and secure and protected. It wants to protect you as your God. We look to our God for protection. So if money's your God, it will be trying to protect you. But it's not a good God, is it? it it's very fragile, and it can betray you. We look to our God for blessing, and we say, man, money, it blesses me. Man, having more stuff, it blesses me. And, and we say, man, money will do that. Well, money doesn't do that well. Man, more stuff, more spending. It just continually, I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. It's more stuff, more stress. It's just for a minute, it makes me feel better, but then immediately it adds stress and anxiety to my life. And then the third thing, sometimes we, we go to our God for a worship experience. And we can go to materialism, more stuff and more money, and that can be our worship experience. Well, what do you mean by that? You know, there's a, there's a term that we use jokingly, typically, a shopaholic. But you know that actually psychiatrists are now being trained to deal with this as an actual addiction? And they're doing studies, and the chemical reaction, the, the chemical reaction that happens with shopping, whether online whether through looking through a magazine and ordering stuff, whether going to a store, the chemical reaction, and actually shopping releases endorphins in the brains and releases dopamine in the brain. That's the same as like alcohol, drugs, pornography, cutting, which is why it just can be just as addictive. You're like, well, that sounds extreme. I mean, I'm sure there's like a couple people that are like that out there. No, no, it's a lot more in our lives than I think we'd care to admit. I'm just depressed. I'm down. You know what? Maybe I don't actually think this, but you know what would be nice? You know, I'm not just going to go shop, buy something new, go online, get a new piece of gear, get a new golf club, get a new outfit, get a new uh, feature for my car, accessory. I'm gonna do, and I feel better for a minute. I'm using it to pick me up. You know, man, I'm struggling, man. My job is not going the way it's supposed to. Uh, my life is not going the way it's supposed to. But you know what would help me feel better about myself? is if I got to wear this, I got to drive that, I got to live in that neighborhood, that would make me feel better about myself. So now I'm using my God of materialism to define my identity. So you know what, I'm hurting right now. I'm in a tough season, and so I can excuse I'm spending a little money. I'm just, I'm in a bad place, so I'm now looking for materialism to bring healing into my life. You know what that is? That's a worship experience I'm looking for. And you know what, every single time that will fail me, it will fail me as an identity. It will fail me to bring satisfaction. It certainly won't bring healing into my life, but there's one who will. Only the Almighty God can. Everything else is so empty. You know, to fight a, uh, fight a revolution, to revolt against such uh, a widespread tyrant like materialism, it's going to take more than just one speech. Okay, It's going to take more than just one moment. And so let me just give you two ways to respond this morning. Two action steps. And the first one is so obvious. The first one is join us for the rest of this series. Be here next week. Invest the next few weeks in this because we're going to be digging in. Okay, what do I literally need to get out of my life now to protect my life from being under this tyrant? What can I do to protect my family from this? How can I get my life back for facing in the right trajectory? We're going to be talking about that the next couple weeks. First application is very simple. Be here next week. But here's the second one. Some of you may be here and saying, look, I am so, I need, I need a lot of practical help. You say, man, no one ever taught me how to budget or no one ever really helped me with those things. I've been figuring it out on my own. But if I could get more help on just the tools and the way to handle the practicals of how to handle my finances, man, that would be super helpful. 
Some of you may say, man, I, I need a little extra help because uh, honestly, I think we're good. It's just that my spouse and I are on just such different pages and I'm watching the tension build. I would just be great if there was one system that we could both learn about and be on the same page. Some of you are saying, look, I need more help than I can just get on a Sunday morning because I need practical help. I am drowning underwater right now. I have so much debt I cannot get out from under and I don't see my way out. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to start this on October 20th. In a couple weeks, we're starting a class that is called a Financial Peace University. It's a class that's led by the internationally recognized financial advisor. He's a Christian. His name is Dave Ramsey. It's right there on the screen, in fact. It's a nine-week class. It goes through each of those practical different things. That um, It goes to each of the practical parts of how to get your finances on the same page And we'll just let him talk on the screen because I think he wants to say something. Go ahead and roll the video. Financial Peace University. Financial Peace. These are words that just don't go together in our culture anymore. Too many people are struggling with this subject of money. Too many people are struggling with this subject of money in their relationships, in their marriages. Too many people are struggling with this subject of money in their area of their careers. We just don't know what to do with this whole thing called money. Well, I found out something about money. Money's actually fun if you got some. Boy, I tell you what, it does weave its way into the tapestry of our lives, and it does mess with us on just about every possible level. So we're glad you're here. I can promise you this, we are going to have some fun as we talk about money. We're going to laugh, we're going to cry, I'm going to talk to you about relationships, I'm going to talk to you about your spiritual walk, your emotions, and we're going to change the way we handle our lives around this subject of money as we go through this class together. If you would, inside your bulletin, you got this insert. It looks like this. Would you go ahead and pull this out? This is a uh, nine-week class. It's starting on Tuesday, October 20th. It goes from 7 p.m. to 8.30. It'll be weekly for nine weeks. And this is something that literally millions of people have gone through this and just consistently rave reviews. People said, man, this got all of my finances back on the right trajectory. Some people say, man, we were really drowning and this helped us get on the right path. You say, look, I'm not drowning. I I think I'm doing okay. Man, this can really give you even more resources for you and your spouse. If you're married, Definitely come with both spouses because you want to both be on the same page. It's going to give you tools, a practical system. It's going to give you principles, and it's going to, you're going to literally drench, drench the financial part of your life in biblical teachings. Remember Solomon said this. He said, at the end of all of it, he said, man, here's, if I have one advice, just fear the Lord and obey him. This is a practical way, starting in a couple weeks, to say, you know what, all right, just, I want the biblical principles so I can handle this part of my life in the way that honors God. The cost to you is just the cost of the materials. It's $100 per household. You may say, okay, I've got kids. How are both me and my spouse going to go? Um, we will ask you to help us supplement some of the cost of that child care. We will have child care available. Um, we ask of you just $50 for the entire nine weeks uh, of this class. So it's an investment, man. It could be the best thing that happened for you in this part of your life to set you guys on the right path. So I encourage you to check that out. If you're interested, we don't have many spots available. So if you want to sign up, I recommend you sign up today, buy the materials today. You can do that by going out through the back lobby into the multi-purpose room to the resource center. You can find the materials there. Please take advantage of that today. We're going to be kicking that off in a couple weeks. I just want you to think about this. 
I want you to think about if you went home this afternoon, driving home from, from church, and you see that there's an envelope in your mailbox, you forgot to get it out yesterday, and you get it and you open it up and it's a letter written from an attorney, and it says that you've just a, a distant relative you didn't even know you had just left you some money in their will. You're the only person they sent this, and you've got all of it, and you're looking at it, and you look at the number, and let's just say, I don't know what the number is in your mind, but I want you to put a number in your mind. It's enough to pay off all of your mortgage, credit card debt, just pay all that off, but it's enough beyond that that you're set for life. I mean, you are set for the rest of your life. I mean, just put a number in your brain. you imagine what that would be like to see that on paper? Now, I want you to say, okay, let's say it wasn't just for one life. Let's say it was enough for you to live twice. And you're like, man, this is, I could live 10 lifetimes on this, okay? I just want you to build that number up. Now, I want you to ask, what if it was enough for you to live indefinitely? See, can I tell you what's on the table for you this morning? It's so much more than your finances. Here's what the Bible is saying to you. This is why we would fear the Lord and say, you know, I'm, I'm going to follow what you say. This is how much he loves you. Do you realize there's a debt hanging around your neck and it's not even financial? There's an eternal debt around your neck and around my neck, every one of us. He's a holy God who deserves our worship. We owe him our worship because he's a creator and we have sin in our life. And what we're told in scripture is that that is a debt How much of a debt is? It's an eternal debt. That means as all of us stand indebted to God, we face an eternity away from God in hell when we die. But God loves us so much, he sends Jesus to to this earth, enters into creation. Jesus dies on the cross. And what that means is he paid our entire debt. All the debts he paid spiritually. But it's more than that. He rose again on the third day. What that means is he didn't just get us back to zero and said, all right, just don't mess up ever again. No, he says, now we've become an heir. That's the wording it uses. It says you've been given an inheritance, an eternal inheritance. That means if you say, yes, I receive this gift from you, God, that means not only are all of your spiritual debts paid, but you receive an eternal inheritance. You will spend an eternal life in heaven when you die. That's not just enough to cover you for a lifetime. That is God himself is saying you are an heir. You're an heir to the family of God. You will live for eternity, age after age after age because of what Jesus did for you. Can you imagine calculating that, the worth of that? It, you couldn't. And that's being offered to you today. That is so much more incredible than finding a letter about an, an earthly inheritance. You have an even more thrilling, incredible offer on the table for you today. God says, just simply put your faith in Jesus and say, yes, you wiped away my sins. And you prepared me for eternity. Yes, Jesus, I follow after you. Do you want to receive that gift today? I'd like to give you an opportunity to do that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? If that's you, just simply pray this prayer right there where you're at in your seats. Just pray this prayer between you and God. Say, God, I recognize that I have a debt. But I realize, Jesus, you paid that debt. You paid for all my sins on the cross. Thank you. And you rose again from the dead. 
so that I know I have eternity in heaven when I die. Thank you, God, for this incredible gift. I can't even describe it. Thank you. I want to live that life being awestruck by you and obedient to your commands. I receive that gift this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call us at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast.org.